we've been looking through the book of Philippians, which is a, a favorite book of a lot of people who are students of the Bible. And uh, one of the reasons for that is because it gives us this picture, this picture of what a joyful and prosperous Christian life can look like and a picture of different facets of the Christian life. And today I want to look at a picture of uh, generosity. We're actually skipping to the end of the book, the very last uh, section of the book, Philippians chapter 4, where Paul gets to the point of the book. One of the reasons it was such a happy book is because the book of Philippians is essentially a thank you note. And here we get to the thank you portion of that. It's uh, Philippians chapter 4. If you're following along, it's in your program. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I, I feel... Okay, that... That's the freight train. That's not, that's not the speakers feeding back. Okay. <laughs> I can be content even when the sound system is uh, playing games. Okay. <laughs> okay. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. I've received full payment and I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This is God's word for God's children this morning. Now, it's an often pointed out irony of American life, just being in America, being able to make it to this room today. One of the things it means to us, means about all of us, if we're here today, is that we're recipients and beneficiaries of all kinds of progress and social and technical advantages that make life better in ways that people couldn't even have imagined a couple decades ago. Uh, you know, it, it's like, the uh, accessory of the smartphone was something that I think only the most uh, progressive minds could have even conceived of uh, 10 years ago, and now every sixth grader needs to have one, or it's uh, a crisis. You know, and comforts like air conditioning. You notice it's, it's comfortably air conditioned in here? Well, you know, that, that's, that's a recent innovation that we could just take for granted, having air conditioning everywhere we go in the summer, and even, uh, you know, it, it astounds me, especially as I become an older man and more in, in need of these things, how uh, all these medical advances there are that take care of and cure conditions that people used to just assume they would pass from or assume they'd have to live with for their whole life. There's all, these, all this progress all around us. And yet, what strikes me is that, that in the midst of all the abundance and all the progress that we're all beneficiaries of, we struggle to be content. We struggle to be satisfied. We're more aware often of what we don't have than of what we do have. And, you know, I, I think it's an interesting part of the human condition that we find ourselves being this way. 
You know, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about almost anything else. And one of the things he made clear is that money is actually one of God's biggest competitors for the affections of our hearts. In one place he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money at the same time. Because Jesus realized that when we lose faith in God, one of the things that, that will, will habitually replace that with is faith in money. When we lose a desire for God, one of the things that replaces that desire often is a desire for money. And uh, Paul talked about money quite a bit. And, you know, but Paul generally talked about money because Paul was a ministry leader. And if you guys have been around ministry leaders, one thing that people who are leading ministries and building ministries are always trying to do is raise funds. And so Paul was always raising money for various projects he was working on. So if you look at the book of Romans, he's raising money for his trip to Spain, his continuing missionary efforts. In 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he talks a lot about money because he's raising money for famine relief for the church in Jerusalem. And then here in Philippians, it's essentially a thank you note. So, you know, this is often overlooked, but a close reading of Paul's epistles reveals that a lot of them were essentially support letters of a certain type. And uh, this little passage here in Philippians chapter 4 has been formative for me because, you know, I've been in, in, in uh, ministry my whole life and in, in the nonprofit space and, and have raised money for more missions and more projects than I can even count right now. And, you know, it strikes me that money has always been, an, it always is an issue in, money, in ministry because ministry takes money. And money's always an issue for Christians uh, because we live in a world where we have bills to pay and mortgages to pay and, and food to buy and things like that. Uh, and hand, handling money is always a challenge, you know, whether you have too much or too little or even when you have just, just the right amount but you can't quite recognize it. So the Apostle Paul, especially in this passage in Philippians, to me, he gives some great insights on how we should look at money and how we should approach money. And the first thing I want you to see here is that generosity generates gratitude to God. It's generosity, when, when people are generous, one of the things it sparks is gratitude towards God. It's one way that we move people to praise God. Look at how he starts. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. So he's praising God because the Philippians have been supporting him. You know, it says, it, the word the translator uses, you've renewed your concern for me, but what, what Paul really means there is that you've renewed your support for me, that you found out I had a need and you guys took a collection and you sent money my way and helped me get out of the tough spot I was in. And so Paul is saying, you know, your generosity to me makes me praise God. So the generosity of the people of Philippi moved, moved Paul to gratitude towards, towards God. And, you know, Paul can recognize two things at the same time. He can hold two, two truths at the same time. On the one hand, the Philippians have opened their wallets and opened their checkbooks and made a donation to his ministry and to 
and to his projects. And on the other hand, God has provided. And he recognizes both at the same time, and he doesn't, he doesn't say it's an either or. It's not just that, well, some people helped me through this thing. And it's not just that Shazam, God provided. It's both at the same time. God has provided, but he's provided through the generosity of his people. And that's the way God works in our age. You know, in the Old Testament, in, when the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness, Remember, for many, many years, they had manna come down from heaven. It just came down every morning, and they go and collect it, and then it would disappear. It would kind of melt away with the dew, and they'd have enough food for one day. And, and that was how the people got through their wilderness journey. Remember that story? Someone nod if you remember that story. Okay. Okay, but in the New Testament, you know, things, things kind of change. And I think the story that's paradigmatic in the New Testament is when Jesus fed the 5,000. Remember how that happened? They're sitting around, and they're all getting hungry, and everyone's like, you know, we're hungry. We've got to close this meeting up. This meeting is over. Everyone's got to go home and get some food. And Jesus is like, yeah, we should feed them. And the disciples are like, we can't feed them. We can't afford this. There's too many people here. Just send them away, and, and, uh, and we're just going to our, eat our lunch ourselves. And Jesus says, no, you give, a, give them something to eat. And then remember, Peter says, okay, here's what we got. We got five loaves and two fish. You know, that sounds like a little snack for the 12 of us, but it's not going to go much further than that. But they present that to Jesus, and then what does Jesus do? He takes five loaves. He takes two fish that they didn't want to give up, remember, that they didn't think was really going to make a difference. He takes that, that little donation, and he uses it to feed the whole multitude. And that, I think, is a model for, you know, that's a model for me and for my ministry. I think that can be a model for all of us. Because we look at our lives, and so often I think we look at the needs around us, and we look at our own circumstances, and we say, you know, I've just got enough for me right now, and I don't really have anything to share. And if I did share, it's not really going to make a difference. But what that story shows us is that God can take the little that we have, and he can make a difference that's beyond our imagination. Because our generosity generates gratitude to God, and that's what... That's how God works. And so Paul says, it was good of you, verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. That's an important verse to me because to me that defines what generosity is. And it also, it also shows us why we don't like to be generous. You know, when someone's troubled, I, you know, my instinct is to kind of avoid them. Because if you, uh, you know, I'll say, I'll, I'll call Karis. <laughs> <laughs> I can't deal with this right now. But, uh, you know, because if, if you start sharing in someone's troubles, what does that mean? That means that you become troubled, right? Because there's no way to help someone else in, in trouble without troubling yourself. You know, if you decide to help someone who's in a bad space, that means you're putting yourself in a difficult space because there's no way to relieve someone else in their, from their difficulty without being willing to enter into that difficulty. And that's sort of the definition of what generosity is. To share in someone else's concern means you're no longer unconcerned. You can no longer go on your merry way. To relieve someone of their poverty is that you volunteer to enter into their poverty by making yourself a little less rich. To relieve the burden of another is to burden yourself. To help someone else carry their load means you've got to put some of that load on your own shoulders. And that's 
why we avoid generosity because because you know to share in someone else's concern means I can no longer be unconcerned but that's the challenge because God's plan for relieving the troubles in this world God's plan for relieving the troubles in Jersey City God's plan for relieving the troubles in your family and God's plan for relieving the troubles even within our church is for us to bear one another's burdens for us to be willing to share in other people's troubles compassion is costly because there's no way to relieve someone else's pain without feeling a little bit of their pain yourself and really the model for this though is our Lord Jesus Christ because how did Jesus come to redeem us what did it take for Jesus to redeem us he came into this world and gave up his trouble-free life the Bible tells us at the right hand of the Father and he became one of us and then he became a servant among men and then as a servant he suffered and died for us so that he could redeem us the whole story of the gospel is the story that we can't redeem ourselves so God sent a redeemer but for God to redeem us he had to enter into our trouble he had to enter into our poverty and he had to bear bear that pain in order to to rescue us from us from it the sinless one had to become sin so that in him and through him we could become the righteousness of God that's the heart of the Christian message the heart of the gospel but it's also the inspiration for Christian generosity Paul says in another place that the test of the sincerity of your love is if you can love like Jesus did and in Isaiah 53 Isaiah gives us a picture of what this looked like it says he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquity the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed for the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all see the story of the gospel the thing that makes the Christian Christian message unique from other religions is it's not about us working our way to God it's about God coming to us it's not about us figuring out how to redeem our lives it's about us resting in the Redeemer who has come and if we believe that the automatic application of that is we need to practice that towards other being willing to enter into the poverty of others being willing to enter into the troubles of others being willing to bear the burdens of others even and especially when it involves burdening ourselves troubling ourselves and maybe even taking a step towards impoverishing ourselves a Christian is simply this someone who has been bailed out of their spiritual and moral bankruptcy by the grace of God and if that is your experience if that is your testimony then you need to be willing to practice that in your relationships in your city and in your personal life as well so uh, so so that's what happens to Paul and that's why why Paul is so happy as he writes you know Philippians is is Paul's happiest letter if you're familiar with the writings of Paul Philippians is Paul's happiest letter but the reason he's so happy is because he's writing to these people who have faithfully and generously supported him and he realizes it's not really just about him he goes on to say here that 
he was going to be fine whether they supported him or not. It's really about a reflection of what is going on in their hearts and what is going on in their minds. And, you know, I, I just uh, relate to Paul at, at this level in that even when we went through this past year, we ended up being way ahead of our projections of what we were expecting for or planning for our, our little church plant to be in terms of the budget. But God provided in a, a, a substantial way, and, and it was encouraging to me and to all of the leaders who are working on these things, not just because it meant the church could pay the bills, although that's preferable, especially since, uh, since I'm the biggest bill the church has. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but yeah, it's preferable that the church can pay its bills, but, but it also is it's people voting with their dollars, voting with their giving, voting with their generosity that they believe in the vision of the church, they believe in the mission of the church, and they want to see that perpetuated and they want to see that prosper. And, and ultimately, though, it's a confirmation. You know, it, it, as, as some of you know, I've been working with various church plants in the area for many years, and, and one of the things that happens as churches are developing is sometimes... A, a church will seem to be a good idea in a certain place at a certain time with a certain leader, and then and they'll they'll make a go of it, and things will seem to be going okay. But one of the things that happens is the finances aren't working out, the financial model isn't working out, and and unfortunately, or practically speaking, if you can't figure out how to make the finances work, if if the church can't balance its books, that's one of the things we we have to to accept as a sign that, well, this ministry model or this plan isn't really viable, ultimately. That's the way the world works, and I, I believe that's one of the ways God shows us what's viable and what's not. And so to see the generosity of our congregation and the commitment of our congregation is, is inspirational to, to all of us because it shows that God is at work in our midst. It's a confirmation from God of, of the work that we are doing. And I, so I hope you will rejoice with me in that. So our generosity generates praise to God. And then the second thing I want you to see is that contentment comes to, through Christ. Paul makes it clear that money is important, but it's not ultimate. In fact, he says a remarkable thing here. This is, this is one of the most uh, familiar verses in Philippians. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Paul says he's got a secret, and he actually shares the secret, a secret that people have been seeking for generations and people are still trying to figure out how the secret is the secret of contentment, how to be content. It's very interesting. This is the only place where Paul talks about contentment and really what Paul's doing here is he's kind of trolling one of the popular schools of uh, philosophy in that day. One of Paul's contemporaries was Seneca. And uh, Seneca was a Stoic philosopher, and his philosophy was, was, became very popular. It's kind of making a resurgence today. But one of the ideals of Stoicism is the ideal of contentment. Sto uh, Seneca said, a wise man is content with his lot, whatever it may be, without wishing for what he has not. And so, uh, you know, in 
in Paul's day, people were, uh, were following the teachings of the Stoics and seeking a way to find contentment in their lot without wishing for what they had not. And, but, but the funny thing is that the human condition is such that contentment is almost impossible for most people, almost everybody, almost all of the time. Uh, 2,000 years later, another philosopher, Ben Franklin, wrote on this subject, and, and uh, this is one of my favorite quotes of his. He put it this way, who is rich? He who is content. And who is content? Nobody. <laughs> so nobody's figured this out. And, you know, it's interesting being an American, uh, you know, you guys are all in America, whether you can identify as Americans or not, you're in America. And uh, being a part of the consumer culture, the the, it's almost like the business of uh, the American economy is to make us discontent with everything we have. You know, you get the iPhone 10 and you're like, this is a pretty cool phone. And then all of a sudden the iPhone 11 comes out and you're like, well, got to trade this in. And, uh, and it's just in every area of life, it seems like that, like, like, like the project of our economy is to develop and provoke discontent in us about our circumstances and about our situation. And, and just to, to keep us in a state of continually wanting more. Someone summed up the American, the American way as this, this way. It says, we buy stuff we don't need with money we can't spare just to impress people who don't care. And uh, yet Paul says he has a solution to that for us. And the solution is contentment through Christ who gives him strength. He says Jesus is actually the key to contentment. And when Jesus is at work in your life and when the gospel is at work in your life, then you can find through him a path to contentment, whether you're living in plenty or in want, whether you're well-fed or whether you're hungry. And so that's the challenge for all of us because you know, as Ben Franklin said, nobody's actually content. Nobody's naturally content. Nobody's naturally satisfied with what they have. But somehow through the gospel, through Jesus, we can find that. Why, why is that? I, I think just a, a few uh, aspects of this. One is that uh, contentment is a relative, a relative uh, emotion. You know, we can tend to feel content when we're equal to or above everybody around us. And one of the reasons we never feel rich in America is as soon as we get a little bit of money, we start going to fancier restaurants or we move to a better neighborhood and we get richer friends and, and we, we continually notice, notice that there are people who have more than we have. It reminds me uh, years ago talking to a guy who had kind of made it in life. And, and he said the big breakthrough, was for, he was a boat guy. He always wanted a boat. And then finally got to the place where he could buy himself a, a decently nice boat. But then once you buy a boat, you got to join a yacht club, right? And as soon as he joined the yacht club, he looked around and realized he had the smallest yacht in the yacht club. <laughs> and so, you know, you need to buy a bigger boat. And uh, then you get friends with bigger boats, and, and it just goes on and on and on. But, but if we're, so if we're oriented by those around us, we're always going to feel poor because we're always going to be finding 
richer friend, people to compare ourselves with who have more than we have. And we'll just find ourselves with uh, the smallest boat and the biggest yacht club and we'll still feel uh, in, inferior. But the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a different standard. If, in fact, we're redeemed by Jesus and he came down to save us, that is our identity, and we're no longer defined by these possessions, and we're no longer as worried about comparing ourselves to other people. And the other thing about it is contentment is a function of entitlement. And, you know, when we think we're, we deserve better than we have, then, then, then we're going to be discontent. If we think we deserve to be paid more, if we think we deserve a better life, if we think at this point in life... I should be in a better place. I should, I should uh, have a nicer, a nicer apartment in a nicer neighborhood. I should have more money to spend on fancier clothes. As long as you feel entitled, you'll never be content. I, I learned this lesson when I was uh, in college. I worked for a summer as a front desk clerk at a very fancy hotel. And one of the things I realized in doing that is when people are paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars a night for an expensive hotel room, if there's one thing that doesn't work in that hotel room, then they're gonna come down and they're, they always complain to the front desk clerk. So I get, got good at being complained to during, during that summer. But they always complain, and, and it's just like one little tiny thing, but they're paying so much for the room, they want abs everything to be absolutely perfect. And you know, I contrast that, a, a, Several months ago, I was traveling, and I needed a place to stay, and I found a motel online for 40 bucks. <laughs> and let me tell you, that room was disgusting. <laughs> but I, I didn't have any complaints. I just, just kind of held my nose in the room and said, you know, I'm, I've got a roof over my head tonight for only 40 bucks. This is great. So contentment is always a function of what you feel you deserve, what you think that you're entitled to in that time. And the gospel, here's what the gospel tells us. We're not entitled to anything. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. The only reason we can hope for anything from God is because Jesus came and died for our sins. Jesus came and gave himself for us. And when we find ourselves struggling with discontent, when we find ourselves struggling with entitlement, we need to remind ourselves that it's by the grace of God alone that we stand. And even on our struggles, we're getting better than we deserve. And it's because of the generosity of Jesus. And so our discontent, you know, discontent for, for someone who's, who's seeking to grow in the gospel, for someone who's seeking to grow in their knowledge of Christ, discontent is actually a useful emotion to feel because it's an opportunity to ask yourself, where am I failing to apply the gospel? Where am I failing to believe the gospel? How am I failing to accept the grace of God in my life? So uh, a commitment to gratitude and a, and a focus on Christ shows, shows us the path to contentment. Ben Franklin didn't believe it was possible, but the gospel gives us an inspiration to look in a different way. So our generosity leads to people praising God. Christ shows us the path to contentment. And then if we're living with faith and with hope, we can implement generosity in our lives. 
you know, it's, it's tempting in our lives to, uh, especially in America, to make our money our security and, and to, to say, uh, you know, if I had a little bit more money in the bank, then I would finally feel secure, then I'd finally feel at rest. And, and you know, when, when you choose to give, whether regardless of where you are on the, on the income scale, it's an act of trust because you're saying, I'm giving away a little bit of my security. I want to get my security from the money I have in the bank, but if I give, I'm going to have less money in the bank and th thus I'll be less secure in terms of, in terms of uh, financial prosperity. And it, you know, it's an interesting fact. You might not know this, but people who, uh, who raise money have, have discovered this and, and it's well, well, a well-known fact of, of American life is that, is that the poor in America are much more generous than the rich. Not in terms of the gross amount of dollars they give, but in terms of the portion of their income that they give away. And, and you know, it's a striking thing, and it goes kind of all the way up to the income scale until you get to Bill Gates. But, but, but you know, there, there's a lot of room between uh, Bill Gates and, and everybody else. And at, where, where the, there's just a direct correlation as people get richer, they give away less and less and less and less. And, and it, you know, it's just a kind of very interesting thing because you'd expect, you'd expect it to be different couple reasons for this that different people have posited. One is the richer we are, the more we tend to find our identity in money. And if we find our identity in our net worth or in our income and things like that, our ability to consume, then if that's where your identity is, then you can't give that away because you're actually degrading yourself. But if you have very little, then, then you know you've got to find your identity elsewhere. And also, you tend to find your security in money. You find your security by looking at your bank balance, by looking at your portfolio, by looking at your possessions, saying, look what I have, and, and look at, and, and this is why I think I can rest, although for some reason I'm still stressed out. I can't figure that out. But, but, uh, but, but there's a temptation to find your security in money. And if you find your security in money, then you can't give it away because you're giving away your personal security. And the third reason is, and, and this might be the most powerful reason, that the more, the more prosperous you are, the harder it is to relate to people who are struggling. The harder it is to relate to people who have nothing, they eat how, and it's easy to forget what it feels like to not be able to pay your rent, to not be able to fix your car, to not be able to buy groceries for the week or, or to uh, cover a medical bill because because that's not something you, you go through on a daily basis, so you, you lose your sensitivity to people who are struggling. You lose your ability to empathize with people who are struggling. But what Paul says is that when we live by faith, we get our identity and we get our security from God and not from money. And we need to work to be empathetic to those who are struggling. And the gospel frees us up to do that. Look at verse 19. Paul has an assurance for the people at Philippi. He says, My God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He says, The ultimate security any of us have in life, it's not going to be provided by our bank account. It's not going to be provided by... The, uh, by, by having a car with 12 airbags. The security 
that we have in life is only going to come from God and from God himself. And if you believe that, then one of the ways you can exercise that is by giving extravagantly, by giving generously, by giving sacrificially, and recognizing that maybe you're not going to have the same kind of financial security that you might have otherwise, but you have a different kind of security, a security that comes from knowing that God is the one who's going to meet all of your needs. So, so the challenge for all of us, you know, and this gets back to what I said at the very beginning, God's biggest competition for our affections is always money. And the question for us is, where do you find your security? Who's going to meet all of your needs? Are you going to meet all your needs, or are you trusting and believing that God himself can meet all of your needs? And finally, it's an exercise of faith. Verse 18 is interesting. Paul says, I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now here Paul is going all the way back to the Old Testament. You remember in the, the, the Jewish temple they had all these ceremonies that are outlined in the book of Leviticus where people would bring bulls and people would bring goats and people would bring birds and people would bring grain, people would bring wine and all different kinds of things to the temple to uh, offer sacrifices. And it was a symbol of people's, uh, people's devotion to God. It was a symbol of the fact that people knew that, that, that a sacrifice was necessary to atone for their sins and to make them right before God. But even as the book of Leviticus outlines all these sacrifices that the people have to make, and even as the people for hundreds and hundreds of years practice these sacrifices, first in Moses' tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple, and, and, and continue to practice them even in Paul's day, the Old Testament and then the New Testament makes clear that those sacrifices could never take away sins. Those sacrifices were never sufficient to, in and of themselves to get us in the presence of God. Those sacrifices were just a reminder of the fact that we need an ultimate sacrifice. We need a final sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. But even in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 50, it says, God doesn't need your sacrifices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God isn't waiting for us to make sacrifices to him. And in Psalm 51, it says, the sacrifice of God is simply this, a broken and contrite heart before him. The point of the sacrifices that people made, and these sacrifices were substantially costly, you know, to bring bulls, to bring goats, to bring wine, to bring grain in that subsistence economy, that, that cost people a lot. That was inconvenient. It was, it was a big part of their family budgets. But the point of those sacrifices was to remind them and to point to the ultimate sacrifice, to point beyond the bull or the goat to the final sacrifice. The Bible says God has provided that sacrifice in the person of Christ. Romans 3.25 puts it this way, God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Ultimately, the heart of the gospel is simply this. Our standing before God is not based on the sacrifices we make to God, but based on the sacrifices God has made for us. And it's not based on 
on our generosity to God ultimately that we will be able to stand before God, but it's based on God's generosity, God's amazing grace towards us. And that is exemplified and actualized in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ. And that is ultimately what we rest in. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would help us, even as we look at our own lives, to look at the life of Christ, to look at the sacrifice of Christ, and to be inspired by him, ultimately and essentially, as the one in whom we hope, the one who provides us with our security, the one who provides us with our prestige, the one who provides us with our joy, and the one through whom we can experience the miracle of contentment. Make it so for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.